0: <laughs> well, good morning. My name is Corey. Welcome to Grace Covenant Church. Um, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to share this morning. Um, for those of you who uh, may be new here or visiting for the first time, um, our lead pastor, Pastor Donnell, and his wife, Pastor Marianne, they are in Los Angeles, California for the weekend. Um, yeah, we. Uh, we, as Grace Covenant Church, are part of a larger family of churches and ministries called Every Nation. And so there's an Every Nation church out there in Los Angeles uh, led by Pastor Dihan Lee. And so uh, Pastor Donnell and Pastor Marianne are there uh, sharing at a leadership conference they had this, uh, this weekend and also preaching this morning. And so, but it's my privilege this morning to uh, share as part of our sermon series called His Field. Right, and so uh, a couple of Sundays ago, Pastor Gay Bouch from Every Nation Church in Philadelphia was here visiting, and, and he kicked off the sermon series with a message about his field and then passed it on. El spoke last week, and so now it's my opportunity. I guess we're rotating people. Um, so um, we'll, start, we'll start by reading from um, the an- kind of the anchor s- verses for this sermon series on his field. So that's captured in Matthew 9. Uh, Verses 35 through 38, so it should be on the screen. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so, this morning, I wanna share about what I believe God has just shown me in my own personal life, which is applicable to all of us about an area of his field that we sometimes may miss or neglect or view with the wrong perspective. And so the title of the message this morning is called Field of Vision. Field of Vision. And so we're gonna look at the life of a man, his life is captured in, uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. His name is Joseph. And um, we're going to see, um, we're going to read about and learn about the vision that God gave to Joseph. And then what that vision was for, ultimately what it produced, and how it took place over the course of his life. And so uh, we're going to pick up, well his life actually is it's recorded over several chapters. Verse, uh, chapters 37 through 50. I would love to just stand here and read with you like 13 chapters of the Bible. It's a good thing to do, but we're going to break it down too. So we're just going to pull out excerpts, all right? So um, we're going to start in in Genesis 37. This is where God gives the vision to Joseph. So, Joseph's father is a, is a man named Jacob. So, when we hear about uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so we're going to, the, the first person mentioned here is Jacob, and so that's Joseph's dad. So, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a, man, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, a vision. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you that you have a harvest field and that you call us to participate with you in reaching that harvest field. Lord, help us to see where your harvest field resides within the visions that you inspire in us and you give us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, as you lead us this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, so here, Joseph gets a vision from God, right? God gives him a vision. He's, in this form, it's dreams, right? So he has these two dreams, and he sees his sheaf of grain stand upright, and the other sheaves bow down to him, and then he sees the sun and moon and 11 stars bowing down to him. So he's, uh, he has 12 brothers, right? He's the 11th of, of 12 brothers, and so That's when we read uh, 11 sheaves of grain and 11 stars bowing down to him. That represents his brothers. And so it's pretty clear here that his interpretation in the moment and the interpretation of his brothers is that they are going to bow down to him and serve him. And they see Joseph at the center of the vision and at the center of the dream. Now, I don't know about you, but that happens to me a lot of times, right? I get some kind of dream, a picture of something that happened in the future, something that I want to do, something that I want to be involved in, whether it's self-inspired or even if it's something that God shows me, but I start to see myself at the center of it, right? And I see, I see the benefit that that vision and that dream is going to have for me and me alone. And I start to eliminate the possibility that anybody else could even be impacted by that dream. But I see my benefit, my comfort, my pleasure, my own joy, right? And so I imagine Joseph is experiencing the same thing. He's a young man, of 17 years old. But look, you could be 40 years old, 42 years old like I am and have a dream. You don't have to be 17 and not have the maturity to be able to see that something is about something greater than you are, yeah. right? And so, just a quick summary of the rest of Joseph's life until we see the purpose for which the dream was given. So you see that there's dysfunction in the family already, right? So what happens is there's a moment when Joseph's brothers see him coming and they're like, man, we wanna get rid of this guy. We don't like him, we wanna kill him. So they plan to kill him. They end up not killing him, but they sell him into slavery instead. There's a caravan of people who are on their way to Egypt. He gets sold to them and they ultimately sell him to a man named Potiphar, a man of authority in Egypt. So he's living in Potiphar's house for a while. Um, and over the course of time, he's, um, you know, there's, he's prospering there, right? So he's put in charge of a lot of things. But uh, Potiphar's wife starts to get some affection for him, starts to be drawn to him, right? The Bible actually says about Joseph, it describes Joseph this way, that he was well-built and handsome. Could you imagine if the Bible said about you, you are well-built and handsome? Like Corey Erickson, well-built and handsome, right? Not that it's not true, Chris, but but I'm grateful that the Bible itself doesn't say that, not because it's not true, but because of what it would cause in my own heart about myself, right? But anyway, it says that he's well-built and handsome, and so Potiphar's wife is drawn to him and she tries to seduce him, right? And Joseph resists because he's growing in character by this point. And he sees that God, he's starting to see that God is at the center. But he sees, uh, so, so he runs away from her. And then she actually grabs his robe, his garment, and shows it to her husband Potiphar and says, look, this, this young Hebrew man who's come to make sport of all of us, right? And so uh, Potiphar's response to that is take Joseph and he tosses him into prison, right? Can you imagine Joseph right now? He's had this dream of what he thinks of himself at the center, his family bowing down to him. He's been sold into slavery by his own family. He doesn't know whether he's gonna ever see them again. So that dream, does he even remember it at this point? Or when he remembers it, is there just such a violation? He's like, I don't know how that could possibly ever, ever happen. Cause I'm never gonna see them again. It's impossible for me to see them again. And I'm a slave, now I'm in prison, right? But something happens while he's in prison, favor is on his life again. And so he's put in charge of a whole lot of stuff within the prison. And so uh, Pharaoh, the ruler of all of Egypt, gets upset with his chief cupbearer and his chief baker and sends them to the prison, right? Now probably, you got to go, you got to think about some stuff, right? Y'all messing up. So so Joseph is there and uh in response to some dreams that they have, Joseph interprets the dreams, and as a result of him being able to interpret those dreams, it brings attention to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has some dreams, calls Joseph in to interpret those dreams, and the interpretation that Joseph has in that moment is that um, there will be seven years of abundance ahead, and it's gonna happen quickly. There'll be seven years of abundance, but immediately followed by seven years of severe famine, right, and so, Because of the wisdom that God has given Joseph through interpreting the dream, but also the strategy of how to attack it, we're going to see, he instructs them uh, for the the seven years of abundance, we're going to take one fifth of all the grain that we reap and we're going to store it up so we have something for the seven years of famine, right? Because of that, Pharaoh says, I'm going to put you in charge of everything, right? And so, After that, the famine comes, it hits. Uh, Joseph's family, Jacob, all of his brothers are still in the land of Canaan, and they're struck by this famine, so they come, right? They are drawn to Egypt because Jacob says, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Can you go? Oh my gosh. God is working on so many levels that we can't even see. Joseph's in prison. Joseph's was a slave. He has no idea when am I ever going to see my brothers and my family again. But because of the wisdom that he pours through him and the, the interpretation of the dream, it draws his family back to him in Egypt, right? To the point where the, the literal picture that he saw is fulfilled when his brothers arrive and they bow down before him. His brothers bow down before him, Right. Um, So his family is saved, right? They come, and then Jacob dies. And so when Jacob dies, his brothers are a little concerned because they're thinking, oh my gosh, the only reason why he hadn't done nothing to us for the way that we treated him because our dad has still been alive. Now that daddy's dead, I think he's going to come for us, right? But what's captured in verse 50, or I'm sorry, chapter 50, verse 15, um, we're going to see the purpose of the vision that God inspired. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The saving of many lives. That's the whole purpose of the vision that God gave Joseph, was for the saving of many lives. And that's the field of vision. There's a harvest field. And that harvest field, what lives in that harvest field are people, the lives of people that need to be saved. And so God inspires this vision for Joseph when he's 17 years old for something that's going to happen way off in the future. He's 30 years old by the time he comes into Pharaoh's court, right? And so it happens way off in the future, but there's a harvest field there. And I know God has inspired visions in each of us, whatever that might be, right? It might be... uh, a vision of some foundation that he's calling you to start that's gonna serve people or a business to start because it's something that you're passionate about. But I want you to know that what's inside of that vision is a harvest field. There are people that live in that harvest field and he's sending you to that place. The vision is not just for our own comfort. And if we fail to see the other people that inhabit that vision, we are seeing incompletely, right? But what I love about this too though, is that it's not just about the future, but it's also about the present. And we're gonna see how in Joseph's life, the field that he was sent to and the field that inhabited that vision was not just the field that happened at this culminating moment way off in the future when thousands upon thousands of people were saved, but it was something that he was doing all along the way. And since he was doing it, there's a pattern there that we're meant to follow also, okay? So Joseph, right, he finds himself in Pharaoh's court. He's made second in charge. You know, if we look at it here, I don't think this will be on the screen, but in Genesis 41, uh, verses 39 and 40, it says, this is after Joseph interprets the dream and then provides some counsel on how best to strategically approach the problem ahead of them. It says, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you, right? So we see here at what looks like the culminating event of this vision that he's second in charge, right? But Joseph was living that already. If we look back and we go to when he was in Potiphar's house, this is Genesis 39 verses three and four. When his master, when Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Right? Joseph might not have been able to see how the vision was already alive and active in his life because he was in prison or because he was a slave at that point. But what was necessary in order for the vision to be fulfilled was already happening. He's already living it there. Then he goes to prison. Genesis 39, verses 22 and 23. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Again, second in charge to the warden. Right? So he's been second in charge at Potiphar's house, in the prison, and in Pharaoh's kingdom, in the palace, right? That's something that just jumps out to me also. He's, the the vision that he has, he's a person of authority, but he's also a person under authority in each place that he is, right? When he's in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's in authority, but he's been entrusted and given authority. When he's in the prison, the warden has the authority, but Joseph is entrusted with authority. In Pharaoh's kingdom, Pharaoh is the ruler, but Joseph is given authority, right? Right? So Joseph has been living this the whole time. There's been a violation probably for him and he doesn't quite understand all of, the sequence of events would not make sense. At least not to me. Like if you show me this, I'm not expecting like I'm not to go, my brother's gonna try and kill me. I'm going to get sold into slavery. I'm gonna be, go to prison, all this stuff, right? But God is working in all those moments. And the challenge for us is when we don't see where he is active in those moments, the vision, the dream that he's given to us, while we're living it, our perspective becomes something that is more like a nightmare than a dream. But it's all his vision, right? It is all his vision. And we start to see where Joseph sees God at the center, right? So second to the warden, right? So we said, Joseph, he interprets dreams. He has dreams, he's interpreting dreams. He kind of misinterpreted that first one a little bit, right? (laughs) A little bit, right? It wasn't entirely off, but, all right. When Joseph came, okay, this is Joseph interpreting the dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. Number one, the fact that he's in prison and he can see that someone else is dejected and have compassion for them. That sounds like Jesus in the Matthew 9 verse where he looked on the crowd and had compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed, right? So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there was no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. Joseph's focus is on God even when they come to him to interpret the dreams, he's not thinking about himself anymore. He's thinking about God and what God's desire is for the lives of these two men, right? And so God gives him an accurate interpretation. And then when he gets called into Pharaoh's court to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, what I love about it is that, so there's something along the lines, uh, I can't remember specifically how it's stated in the verse, but when Pharaoh calls him, it's like he just needs to shower and shave. He's ready to go. You know, I could imagine for myself, because he tells the cupbearer whose life is saved, he goes back to Pharaoh, and he says, please don't forget about me. Cupbearer forgets about him like immediately. <laughs> immediately. Could you imagine? You're like, no, please don't forget about me. I, saved, I helped save your life, right? Because his interpretation of the dream was about the saving of the cupbearer's life. So he's engaged in the saving of lives while he's in prison, yeah. right? So... After all these years, the cupbearer's forgotten about him, but now he remembers. Oh, fair, you had the dream. Nobody else can remember. No, he can't. We called all the people that can't interpret. Oh, there was this guy. There was this guy in jail. We should go get him, right? Can you imagine, too? Like, there's a guy in jail. I'm like, fair. I'm like, some dude in jail? All right, I'll bring him over. So he comes, right? But I imagine the potential bitterness that you could feel in that moment, just having being left there. But his response is one, I, God, you are working right now. You are working. There is a, there is a, there's a dream you want interpreted. I'm living in your vision right now. Let's go, right? So he goes. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, wow, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. By, but I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So you see the shift, right? Before he thought the dreams were all about himself, but now he sees the dream of what God wants to do in those places, right? He sees what God wants to do. So when we talk about field of vision, there's a field of the vision, this long-term vision we have, and there's a harvest field down there, down the road even, right? But there's this field of vision that exists right before our faces, right in our eyesight. You know the term? That's within my field of vision from my peripheral vision from here to here. What I see in front of me is his harvest field. That is a field of vision and his harvest resides in that vision. Right here, what's right in front of me. Otherwise, we overlook the very things that he wants to do and the people that he wants to reach right in front of our face because we get so fixed on what's happening down the road and down the future. And sometimes that's because there's a selfish motivation for what we get to experience in the future versus seeing what God wants to do right now Right, here, even if I'm in prison, even if I'm sold into slavery, whatever that is, there is a field of vision before us. And so we start to see what, the, what a more accurate interpretation of the original vision he got of the sheaf rising up and the other 11 bowing down. In the saving of many lives, it wasn't that he rose up and the others bowed down so that the others would serve him. But God's purpose for that vision was that Joseph would rise up so that he could serve others. Not that he would be served, but that he would be put in a position to serve others and to save others' lives. Not that Joseph himself is a savior. God is the savior, right? So I just think about certain situations in my own life, right, so uh, my, my uh, corporate background, my professional background is uh, corporate finance and accounting, right? If I'm honest with you, I don't like it. (laughs) It's not my favorite thing to do. You know? Some of y'all might love it. It's good. Like, yeah, God made you that way. That's good. He didn't make me like that. But somehow I'm doing it, right? And so I would have these internal dialogues with myself. I still have them, right? Wondering like, okay, I was was working at this particular place. I was just, I was there. I was just grinding it out day after day, week after week, month after month. And I would start asking myself these questions like, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? And why am I here? This is like not joyful to me right now. I don't like the work that I'm doing. Why, what am I doing here? Like, how did I get here? I can trace that back to certain decisions. I should have, I should have majored in something else, not accounting. So, but, but still, but how did I get here? But slowly, God's been showing me something and it's helping me to respond a little more quickly that I'm asking the wrong questions. I'm having this internal dialogue with myself. Corey having a conversation with Corey that's causing anxiety, that's causing stress, that's causing discouragement. What am I doing here? You know, I'm like, what am I doing here? Why? why? Yeah. But he had me start asking a different question. Jesus, what are you doing here? That's good. Not what am I doing, here? what are you doing here? Yeah. Not how did I get here, but why did you send me here? Yeah. And so I was working at this particular place and... There was, a, there was a young lady who was on my staff that was on my team, and she was um, she's a really good worker, really good employee, but she started having some issues in her personal life, you know? And uh, I just remember certain discussions that we had as a team, as those who were managers, other leaders, and so often the, the conversation about her, it would just be about her performance. And it's just like, she's not getting it done, you know? And it was about whether or not she was able to produce or not, but for me, I was like, man, this isn't right. You know, not that we shouldn't do our jobs and do them well, but she was hurting. I knew she was hurting. I knew that there was uh, depression in her life, that she was just suffering through some really, really challenging things. And so here, I'm, I'm at this job. I'm like, Dude, I don't even want to be here. But I mean, I guess, well, you know, there's young ladies here and I'm just kind of grinding it out. I don't really understand. But I guess in that moment, God started showing me like, okay, just make sure that you help her while you're here. And then, you know, everything came to a resolution. She's, she, got, she got better and stuff, and then I'm getting ready to leave my job. T- I was just like, I'm still, I'm done with this place, right? I go and I talk to my vice president. I'm like, I talk to my VP. I'm like, I'm ready to go like yesterday, okay? I'm done, I can't do it anymore. And so we're just having these conversations. He's like, no, nah, man, just stick around a little bit. Don't be too rash. I mean, you got a family, you got a wife. I had a newborn baby. I'm like, I'm leaving, right? <laughs> yeah, didn't talk to my wife about it before I had that conversation either. We talked about it afterwards, though. It was good. Uh, but he, that man, that VP, he helped me. He, 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 he kept me out of trouble. But this man, this man, uh, who, who I, I honestly don't know what his, whether he has a relationship with Jesus or not, but I was like, what am I doing? And he said, Corey, maybe the whole reason why you were here was to save her life. I was like, man, but I could have missed that. If I would have been too focused and so fixated on what was challenging to me in that moment, what was uncomfortable for me in that moment, that I would have just overlooked her. And we would have. It, there are people that were dying in that place spiritually, I know. But this young lady could have lost her physical life yeah. because of where she was. And I'm so grateful that God will put us in a place where there's a harvest field right before our eyes, yeah. right there. I'm so grateful that I was in a harvest field right before someone's eyes, right? Someone could have overlooked me. Someone could have overlooked you. And so we can't overlook those people who are in the harvest field that are in our field of vision that are right there. It's his harvest field and he's put us there to see these people. And so, let's think about Joseph. You know in that verse, what, what you intended to harm me. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, right? Sounds a whole lot like someone else that we read about in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds a whole like someone else that we sang about this morning. Yeah. That intimate relationship with Yeshua, right? But it's Jesus. So if we look in Acts 2, verses 22 to 24, there's a man named Peter, um, who was one of the first followers of Jesus, but Jesus has already died and he's ascended back to heaven. And so Peter is addressing a crowd of people and he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Sounds like vision to me. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What we intended to harm Jesus, God intended for good, right? We put him through harm, but God intended it for good. When the nailing of his body on the cross was for the saving of many lives. It was for the saving of many lives. Your life, my life. Right? But what I love is Jesus didn't just do it on the cross. He wasn't engaged with it only on the cross. That was the culminating moment where the power of sin is broken over our lives when he dies on the cross and he's resurrected from the dead. But he lived a life that was drawing people to Jesus and showing them the kingdom of heaven for the three years prior to that. And I believe even though it's not captured in the Bible for the years before that. We read about when he was a boy and he was in the temple and said, I need to be about my father's business. And so Jesus was doing it. He was teaching people about the kingdom of heaven. He was telling them that I am the son of God. You need to put your faith in me. I am here. The bridegroom is here now. So it's not just about the culminating moment. That's the one thing that we all want is this celebration moment, Uh, you know, at the end of what we think is the fruition of the the vision that God has given us because there's a huge harvest field there, but we're missing the harvest all along the way. And who knows if the harvest that we see in our line of vision, the total sum of all those lives that are changed, the total sum of all those lives that are healed, the total sum of all those lives that are, uh, while while we're in prison, while we're in the pit, where we we feel uncomfortable, if that uh, out, outnumbers the grand moment at the end when there's a saving of all, all these people's lives in Egypt. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss all these lives. We need to see what's right in front of us. So I'm telling you, there's a field of vision. There's a harvest field ahead, way down in the road. So don't get it twisted, right? Don't, don't think like, oh, that's for my own comfort. We need to be able to see that that's for the saving of many lives, both in the future, but also now, right? too often have a mentality of saying, you know what, once I arrive there, then I will do. Once I arrive, then I will do. It's not how it works. I arrive because I'm doing already, right? Joseph was doing already. He was number two where he was, but he was doing already. And because of that, because he was participating with God in the harvesting of his field, he found himself in a position where he could be called into the place where there would be a major, what, major impact over a, over a compressed period of time, right? So let's not miss it. Let's not miss it. There's a harvest field right before us, and it's in the process of doing. We want that moment at the end, but the moment at the end is built on all of the, just working in his harvest field each day with the person in front of us, the person in your home, in your household, the person at your job, the person in your class, the person that you're going to walk by on the street, the person you're going to see at the lobby of the Western upstairs. Who knows who that person is? The person that you talk to every day at the coffee shop, but you never told them about Jesus. Right? And so, I just want, to have, want us to have the right perspective of what his vision is for. That the vision that God gives is for the saving of many lives, both now and then. And our view of his vision is skewed if we only see ourselves in it. The harvest field resides in, is inherent, lives in the vision. So Father, I thank you this morning. I'm so grateful that We have been your harvest field. We are your harvest field. And that you have used workers that you have sent to participate with you to reap the harvest of our lives into eternity. And I thank you for inviting us to participate with you in your harvest field, in the field of vision that you've given to us. Help us to see every life along the way not just the ones that we can project project in our imagination in the future, but the person that's uncomfortable for me to talk to right now. I thank you that you sent Joseph from a land called Canaan to Egypt so that the saving of many lives were not just people that looked like him or spoke the same language but the saving of many lives included people of other ethnicities that included people from other places that included people from other socio-economic classes that you sent him just like you send us for the purpose of the saving of many lives we do not claim to be Savior ourselves, but we get to participate with our Savior in your harvest field Field. So Lord, whatever vision that you've inspired in every person here, every man, woman, and child, help us to see the harvest field there. If we're called to be entrepreneurs, help us to not to only look and say, we'll do it when the business is built, but that we're going to do it now. If you've called people, given them a vision to own a huge home down 10,000 10, square feet, but it's to be filled with the saving of many lives, and it doesn't just start once they own the 10,000 square foot home, but it starts in their three, 300 square foot studio apartment. The saving of many lives starts there, not just in the future. So we thank you, Lord. Help us all to live well and to see your harvest field and to walk into it with you, knowing that we don't do it for you, but we do it with you. Thank you for the invitation. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.